Well, let's see how the adults do. <laughs> I'll get out a rope if I need to. <laughs> Good morning. It's my pleasure to greet you all who are here in the sanctuary, as well as those of you who are worshiping at home. At Black Knoll, we gather uh, not just because we like each other, though we generally do, not just because we're in the habit of gathering, but because we are brought together by the spirit of our risen Lord Jesus. Uh, so it's in that name and by that spirit that I greet you whether you've been here decades or this is your first or last Sunday. Uh, we're so glad to be worshiping together. Would you let us know that you're here by signing the black friendship pad? It's on the end of your pew. If you'd like to leave your contact information, uh, that's a good place to put it. This morning, we'll continue our study of the Gospel of Mark uh, we're in chapter 8, starting with verse 22. I don't know what page it's on in your pew Bible. Let's listen again to the word of the Lord. <clears throat> They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When Jesus had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked the man, Do you see anything? The man looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent the man home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, Jesus asked them, Who do people say that I am? The disciples replied, uh, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, the prophets. But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it was almost a decade ago now, I think, when Jack and I embarked on a bike camping trip. Some of you have heard me tell this story before. We loaded down our bikes with a tent and light camp gear and set off from Durham to Richmond with some friends, planning to bike and camp along the way. Well, we hardly made it out of town when I hit a wall. I asked the group to stop, take some weight off my bike, give me a pep talk. 
That first day was long, hot, hard. I was ready to turn around and go home. So when we finally arrived at our campsite, we were all so excited that my husband, Jack, just ran and jumped into the lake. Clothes on, glasses on. And when he came up out of the water, clothes on, glasses off. We'd brought spare tires, but not a spare pair of frames. So we looked up the nearest Walmart where Jack could get an eye exam and a set of lenses, and the next morning we set off on our bikes down a narrow country road, and I was leading him. <clears throat> he was behind me, straining even to see the white line in front of us, and he was calling out every few minutes, Goody, slow down, stay close. It was pretty harrowing for us both, but I dare say, especially for Jack, who had to follow when he could not see. Imagine that you are the blind man in Mark's story. You've been shuttled through the crowd by someone, friends, relatives, and presented to Jesus. You hear your friends ask Jesus for help, but no answer. Instead, a new unfamiliar hand reaches out and takes your own. And suddenly, you realize you're being led away from the crowd. You keep walking. The sounds and smells of the village are becoming distant. The hard-packed road gives way to unfamiliar turf. Maybe as you go, someone calls out, We're praying for you. It's going to be okay. Maybe you hear the chatter of a few others walking with you, or perhaps the owner of this unfamiliar hand offers you a few words of assurance. We don't know. You, you're full of hope, but you're also on your guard. Your own experience, and even the tale of your ancient biblical ancestor Isaac, has taught you that because of your blindness, well, you're vulnerable. Vulnerable to trickery, or even worse. Still, you decide that hope is worth the risk. You feel a body draw close, face to face, and then... Warm spit in your eyes, running down your cheeks. And Jesus speaks. Do you see anything? You draw black and blink your eyes and look up. And through your blurred vision, you see the owners of those chattering voices. But they look less than human or what you remember the human form to be when you were blind. And so he touches you again. He presses his calloused hands onto your eyes, and suddenly you can see, and you're face to face with Jesus, and around him everything is clear. Run along home, he says, and don't go back through town. And you watch as he and the disciples go on down the road. 
your story, this story, it's not just a tale of miraculous healing. It's a picture, a vivid, surprising illustration of what it means to be a disciple. As they continue down the road, Jesus asked his disciples a series of questions. Who do people say that I am? But what about you? Who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah, Peter blurts out. And Jesus offers what should be by now in our study of Mark a familiar but still odd response. Shh, don't tell anyone. Why does Jesus persist with the secrecy when Peter sees that Jesus is not just another prophet? He's not just the latest prophet, John the Baptist. He's not even the last prophet, Elijah. Why does Jesus persist with the secrecy when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ? In Hebrew, the Messiah. Peter says more than anyone in the story is yet to imagine. He asserts that Jesus is the long-awaited king of kings who will usher in God's kingdom. And Jesus says, be quiet. Why? Because Peter's vision is still blurred. Like the blind man, he sees, but he doesn't yet see clearly. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells people to be quiet. He performs a miraculous, life-changing healing and says, just don't tell anyone, okay? He sends the man home with restored sight instead of through to the village so he won't spread the word. As a reader, it's hard to understand. We don't see this happening in the other Gospels. It's unique to Mark. Scholars call it the messianic secret. Even though Jesus asks his disciples directly in our text today, who do you say that I am? He knows that his disciples, well, they can't really understand yet. You see, Jesus was not the sort of Messiah that Peter or anyone expected. Jesus did battle, not with a mob or a sword, but through suffering and death. Jesus' triumph was an empty tomb. And this disgraceful and fantastic picture just did not fit Jewish ideas of how God would usher in the glory days. So Peter gives Jesus the right title but the wrong job description. The way this Messiah will accomplish his task looks like failure to the naked eye. Peter, James, John, no one can see Jesus clearly, see him as the crucified and risen Messiah until after his death. So until then, Jesus tells them, keep quiet. This whole messianic secret thing is about pointing to the cross as the moment of revelation. But even then, you might say, even after the cross, the disciples are still a little blinded by the light. 
Think about the ending of Mark as we have it. The women come to the tomb looking for Jesus, not as a risen Lord, but as a rotting corpse. And instead they meet angels who tell them to go and share the good news. But Mark leaves us with the comment that the women were afraid and told no one. Think about the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They see the risen Lord, but they can't recognize him. They walk with him. They talk with him. It's not until the breaking of the bread that their eyes are opened. Think about the ascension recounted in the book of Acts. When Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples are just left there, staring upwards. And the angels appear, chiding them, say, Why are you standing here, looking into the sky? You're focused. You're looking at the wrong thing. They can't understand Jesus as Messiah before his death. But even after the resurrection, disciples, well, they can't claim 2020 vision, can they? Their powers of perception remain limited. In just a few chapters, Jesus will perform a miraculous and complete healing of a blind man on the outskirts of Jerusalem. But I think it's no accident that this two-step healing, this gradual recovery of sight, prefaces Peter's confession and Jesus' prediction of passion and his instructions about discipleship. Because the truth is, most of Christian discipleship is taking the hand of the one who leads you when your vision is still not clear. Don't get me wrong. There are certainly moments of dramatic insight, times when the scales fall from your eyes. But more often than not, it's learning to see in the dark. Most of Christian life is a gradual coming into focus, a clarity that only comes as we follow. This coming week, we'll have the privilege of baptizing two elementary-age children. Uh, You're invited, and you'll hear more details soon. Joy Manila will be baptized by immersion at St. John's on Tuesday, and Patrick Hayes will be baptized in our 11 a.m. service next Sunday. We will ask both of these children, ages 9 and 10, who is your Lord and Savior? But we might as well ask, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? So, who do you say that he is? These children will say, as they want to do, as they've been instructed to do, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But do they understand? Yes. And like all of us at our baptisms, whether we are five months old or 50 years old or somewhere in between, no. We don't yet see clearly what our confession means. We are always partially in the dark. And sometimes, well, the light seems faint. The clarity only comes if you take Christ's hand and follow. 
we don't answer this question once, who do you say that I am, but we revisit it again and again during the course of the lifetime. Who do you say that I am? Sometimes when I sit down with a young adult, I'll ask them, what's your one-sentence confession today? And I try to answer too, not to give a whole theological treatise, but to practice answering this question, making our confession, who do you say that I am? This week, I asked a member of our congregation, not that question, but to reflect on this passage. And this individual is still legally blind, but has experienced an amazing recovery of sight himself under the care of doctors and with the prayer of friends in this congregation. Here is some of his confession. Hoping to recover one's sight when it is as far gone as mine was is patently ridiculous. And yet, that actually really happened. In passing along this story to different folks, some say they realize that it's not the case that everything in life always gets worse. I want to be careful here not to give the impression that I'm trying to prove the existence of God with this. I do, however, think that this thing is a gift from God and an answer to the prayers of myself and many friends. So then, at least, one appropriate use of it is an encouragement of others. To his own surprise, after years of following in the darkness, this friend has come to know Christ as healer and experienced quite a literal recovery of sight. What about you? What is your confession? Who do you say Jesus is? In our strange, whatever you'd want to call it, post-enlightenment, post-modern, post-Christian moment, we face a mix of temptations, I think. One temptation is to believe that our powers of perception are not limited at all, that our reason is sufficient. Another temptation is to doubt that there's just anything out there worth seeing. And perhaps a third is to believe that uh, I've already seen it all. But maybe we can be encouraged by some earlier Christians. Early and medieval Christians looked forward to something that perhaps we won't even give ourselves permission to imagine. For centuries, theologians described being in God's presence as something called the beatific vision. Beatific as in beatitude and vision as in sight. Heaven was that blessed sight when we finally and fully see God. Here's how St. Augustine describes it. Wherever we look, we will see God with brilliant clarity. Wherever we look with the spiritual eyes of our bodies, we shall even by means of our bodies behold the incorporeal God. Only after death and resurrection would our reason be purified enough to behold this. Seeing clearly wasn't characteristic of even the most pious Christian on earth. 
seeing clearly was the hope of heaven. And most of discipleship in the here and now was, well, stumbling in the darkness towards this promise of blessed sight. Friends, this morning I want you to know that Jesus' hands are open and outstretched to you. He is ready to lead you, and he will take you places that you do not want to go. And it will sometimes be harrowing to follow when you can't see. But friends, the end is that beatific vision, that most blessed sight. If anyone experienced a dramatic conversion, a complete and instant recovery, it was the Apostle Paul. But even he didn't seem to reflect on his discipleship as being, well, a fully enlightened sage. He famously wrote, For now we see only a reflection in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Or, in the interpretation of Eugene Peterson, we don't see things clearly. We're squinting in the fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather changes and the clear sun shines bright. Then we will see it all, see it all clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly, just as he knows us. Stumble on, friends. Your vision is not 2020, but you are in the hands of one who will make you see. Let's pray together. Jesus, take us by the hand and move us to follow. Together, grant us a fresh vision of who you are as crucified Messiah, risen Lord, and make us your faithful and humble witnesses. This we pray because of Jesus. Amen.